Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 116. At time of release, we are all quarantined in our homes like you are. Lauren and I here at the Speakeasy Studio, and Leo live via satellite at Speakeasy Studio B in... Eagle Rock! Yeah! Eagle Rock! Home of what? <laughs> uh, Reservoir Dogs? Reservoir Dogs? What else? What else? Teen Wolf with Michael Teen J. Wolf? Fox. Yeah, with yeah. Michael J. Fox, the original. Uh, t- Tom Cruise in uh, Days of Thunder. Really? Specifically says, yeah, he, he says he's from Eagle Rock. <laughs> there you go. Is Donut Friend in Eagle Rock? Donut Friend. I don't think Very Donut- close. Very it's close. Highland Park. Yeah, super close. Highland Park. Billie Eilish's favorite donut place. That's right. In fact, yep. they had a Billie Eilish donut there. I don't know if they do anymore. They probably, probably do now. Yeah, they probably brought yeah. that shit back. Yeah. And you guys recall what, it, what it's called? I don't know what it's called. That's a good question. The Ocean Eyes Donut? I don't know. Oh, I think so. Is it something that's <laughs> yeah. named after a song? Yeah. Uh, and Cindy's Restaurant, which I just learned where they shot the first Ouija. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. dude. That, you know what? That, that place has excellent food. Really? Yeah, it's really good. It yeah. looks like one of those old style diners that you'd see in a movie. But do they do yeah, totally. curbside delivery? Their, yeah, right. Do they do curbside <laughs> delivery? <laughs> it's been there forever, but I think recently uh, some new younger people took it over and they have like revamped, uh, you know, menus, but the food is really good. Yeah, that curbside delivery and everything right now, what's happening in here in L.A. is some of these restaurants that have been around forever are having to close, like Nate and Al's in Beverly Hills ended up shutting its doors indefinitely, and same with Casa Vega, a famous Mexican restaurant that was actually in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and was a favorite place where like Brad Pitt used to hang out and everything, and they closed their doors indefinitely, too, throughout all this, which is sad. Oh, I, sad. I hope yeah. everyone is able to reopen and everything kicks back into gear in the next few months here, but who knows, man? This thing is being drawn out. I'm over it. Yeah. No, I know you're right. <laughs> I think we're all over it. And yeah. I, I really miss having guests in studio. Me too. Yeah. It's sad. But no worries. As a result of this crazy virus business, we're still able to bring you conversations using the miracles of modern technology. That's Broadcasting right. from the comfort of our guest's own home, like our guest today. Which is... Freddy Krueger himself, Robert England. He joins us to talk about his new show, True Terror, with Robert England that airs Wednesdays at 10, 9 central on the Travel Channel. Uh, this was really scary for me, you guys. Some of you know I have a complete fear of anything Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger, and Robert England. And I had a crazy experience with him at Loveline one time. We talk about it in a lot of episodes, so I'm sure you can find one where I tell this crazy story. But we reunited, and you're just going to have to listen. 
It's not good. It's an, Lauren. Stop. Yeah, it's, an, stop. it's an awesome reunion. I love it. This guy's amazing. He talks about his favorite strange but true stories. We get into the fascinating world of a Nightmare on Elm Street merchandise, the Elm Street prequel directed by Toby Hooper, and more, including which filmmakers Robert thinks would be the perfect fit to carry on the legacy. Lauren, be so kind as to introduce the man of the hour, <laughs> the man of your dreams. Fuck you. <laughs> Stop. Dude, you guys, I'm going to sleep soon. This isn't funny. I'm not going to sleep. Sleep's overrated. Shit, guys. Okay. Uh, listen to our episode or don't. Because it's scary. <laughs> Hi, kids. Robert England, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger, the man of your dreams. And when I'm not haunting your nightmares, I'm listening to the Boo Crew. <laughs> Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a classically trained and multi-award winning actor, director, voice artist, producer, and singer. He has appeared in countless TV and film projects, the most beloved of all time, from The Hardy Boys, Soap, Charlie's Angels, Simon & Simon, Night Court, MacGyver, Knight Rider, starred in the Emmy-nominated and highly influential sci-fi series V. Around that same time, little did he know a character he was about to bring to life would change not only horror cinema, but film history and pop culture culture forever the springwood slasher the bastard son of a hundred maniacs freddy krueger in Wes craven's 1984 film a nightmare on elm street his performance choices transformed freddy into an icon and spawned a never-ending trove of merchandise dolls toys albums haunted attractions 44 episodes of his own tv series freddy's nightmares and eight films to date Freddy is now among the pantheon of classic movie monsters, as easily recognizable as Dracula and Frankenstein, and infinitely more quotable, with his whip-smart one-liners, commentary, and swagger. Elm Street was simply the kicking-off ground for our guest, who has since gone on to star in dozens of films, from Phantom of the Opera to Toby Hooper's The Mangler, 2001 Maniacs, Hatchet, and more, and has voiced everyone from the Riddler in the Batman animated series, the Vulture in the Spectacular Spider-Man, and roles in video games. He's even directed his own films, 976 Evil and 2008's Killer Pad. His latest project is a six-part series airing now on the Travel Channel on TravelChannel.com and the Travel Channel Go app. It's called True Terror. You're going to absolutely love it. Joining us is its star and host, Mr. Robert England. Yeah! Woo! Yeah! Wow! Wow! What an intro, guys! Uh, I, people that will tell you, myself included, I am no singer. <laughs> oh, I was a gymnast. I was a swimming champion. I'm a great surfer. Big Wednesday, John Milius. But no, I don't sing. I did the musical Godspell a hundred years ago because I could I move well and I could dance and do gymnastics and tell a good joke. But uh, thank God I didn't have to sing. I just faked it all. Through the show. <laughs> well, we know you can rap. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yes. uh, what a slut what an old whore oh that freddy sings that's when i think new line had never had a hit before they were approached by all these merchandising options and they came up with that and they kept merchandising me to kids and the, at, at the origins of nightmare on elm street back in 84 
the first fans were dorm rats locked up in dormitory rooms during the winter and heavy metal and punk rockers. Those were the first fans. I don't know why they thought they had to uh, merchandise Freddie to children. <laughs> right, the very, the very people, his very victims. Well, we'll talk, we'll get into that uh, in a bit here. But first of all, thank you so much for joining today. It's an honor and pleasure. And congrats on this wonderful new show. It's fantastic to see you on screen in this way. And with everyone locked away in self-isolation due to the pandemic that has hit the world at, at time of release, it's the perfect comfort food to indulge in that does a great job of capturing the whimsy of shows like The Twilight Zone and Unsolved Mysteries in terms of the presentation, formula, and delivery. Tell everyone what the new show is about and how it's got that magic baked into its DNA. Well, one of our producers was incredibly influenced uh, by Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, It was this uh, kind of anchor, this uh, bridge support of his childhood into adolescence, and he was just addicted to the show with Robert Stack. Some of you may remember it. Um, and also, uh, he was like like myself. He's considerably younger than me, but like myself, uh, he'd also uh, become addicted to Twilight Zone, probably on those marathons that they run during Thanksgiving. Whereas I was an original Twilight Zone baby. I can remember lining up in the third or fourth grade you know, and we would all be waiting for our teacher to escort us into the classroom. And we had to have arms distance between us, kind of an early social distancing, a rigid, straight, perfect line of third grade, third graders and fourth graders ready to march into the classroom. And we would all whisper to each other and and analyze and gossip about the prior evening's episode of Twilight Zone. So occasionally on True Terror, the recap or the ending wrap-up has a little bit of the rhythms and flavors of Rod Serling. Uh, There's more than a little bit of of Vincent Price tossed in there. He's sort of part of my persona now. Anyway, uh, after I got out of the makeup uh, for Freddie, and I I did a couple of other big makeup roles after after Freddie versus Jason, but I had aged in the 20 years since 1984. And I, I looked very young uh, in my early 30s. Uh, I was still getting carded in bars. But uh, when I finally got out of the makeup, uh, a combination of, of hard work and too much Irish whiskey, I had aged. Uh, this face was beginning to take shape. Uh, I had some gray in my beard. I grew a beard. And uh, I did sort of organically kind of segue into the mad scientist, old doctor, the old priest, uh, the guy that tells the backstory, the old poacher, kind of roles that are classic ingredients in the menu of, uh, of horror and science fiction and fantasy films. And because of the way I look, there's a little bit of Klaus Kinski, a little bit of Max von Sydow, a little bit of, uh, of Vincent in price in in my appearance and and so instead of being the young funny sidekick that i was uh during my a-list uh 70s feature film career those roles don't really uh age in hollywood anymore they used to back in the 30s and 40s with you know uh, uh walter brennan and ward bond and actors like that but not so much any longer and so fortunately for me 
I've been able to kind of age into this senior citizen uh, within the horror genre. I bring a lot of baggage with me. And I think that, uh, you know, our, our producers thought that that would kind of lend some gravitas to our show, which it doesn't have a tongue in cheek or a wink to it. Uh, but we are looking at a kind of underbelly, a kind of a dark side of the American psyche and what we believed in or or what we would would surrender to in journalism or tabloid journalism in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And these stories have all been sourced out of newspapers. And many of them have become urban legends. Many of them have been disproved by the fact that we're wiser now, more sophisticated, more educated. Uh, science has advanced and medicine has advanced. But some of them hold the test of time and are still true. I know in our initial episode, we had one about the uh, smallpox victims, the plague in New Orleans at the turn of the century. Sound familiar? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, but they were burying people alive. There literally was a kind of unholy, greedy American activity going on, then a kind of agreement and corruption between coroners and uh, doctors and uh, a less sophisticated medical science Coffin makers, the guys that drove the coffins to the graveyards, you know, uh, the, the charity wagons, the actual grave diggers themselves at the cemeteries, you know, they were getting paid, paid by the head per capita, you know, with the bodies. And they were literally burying people alive. That's true. That's one of our one of our earliest stories we tell on True Terror. And uh, tonight, tonight's episode uh, we have one, well, tonight's one of our segments tonight deals with a, a man that, uh, attempted to preserve, uh, his loved one, the love of his life. Uh, and I don't want it to be a spoiler alert, but, uh, I think I should say, uh, think Anthony Perkins in psycho mother, <laughs> and you'll know what I'm talking about, but we think it's fun. And, and I love the hindsight, the historical distance that these these most of these stories have uh, gives us a way of understanding and an and insight into who we were, who Americans were then and into our lack of sophistication, uh, our superstitions, uh, where our science and medicine was at then uh, and, and those primal fears that we still carry with us today. So, Robert, do you have a favorite or a most bizarre story that's uh, part of the season? I think my two favorite are the Buried Alive one, which has already aired, and tonight's one. I was talking to somebody earlier who was telling me he, he, he did some research on this, too. Apparently, <clears throat> and I, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but uh, I'm, I'm, to a man's true love, and he, she dies, and uh, he keeps her with him, and he preserves her and dresses her up and puts makeup on her. And I think someone had done some research on one of my earlier uh, publicity calls today and said that they were he was putting apple rinds in her and uh, fruit rinds just to keep the smell abated, you know, while he would talk to her in her deathbed. Oh, strange, but true. Exactly. I find myself pausing the show often to verify the stories on Google, like the one where the two cowboys come across and kill a dragon to find that there is actually validity to the lineage of these tales, which is adds another element to the whole show, which is super fun. 
I'll, I'll be honest. Like, I'm not a Bigfoot guy. You know, that's not my cup of tea. Uh, I, 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 it was sort of ruined for me because as a teenager, I'd had a double date at the drive-in movie uh, for The Legend of Boggy Creek, you know, that cheesy 16 millimeter uh, early Bigfoot movie with a guy running around in a gorilla suit in Yosemite or somewhere. <laughs> and uh, so I never took the Bigfoot thing seriously. And then years later, I had a friend who, who quite literally had had an affair with, a, a, I believe, a Hopi uh, a Native American. And I found out that in the Native American folklore, going back hundreds of years, there's a, the Sasquatch legend. It's much earlier than we think. It's sourced back in our history much earlier uh, through Native Americans and on our Bigfoot episode, which was uh, last week, we, we kind of thematically grouped a, a kind of true terror critters episode together, uh, which is also the cowboys and dragons, and cowboys and pterodactyls. But in the Bigfoot episode, our source material is none other than President Theodore Roosevelt at the turn of the century. Quotes and diaries and newspaper articles. So there's I don't want to say credibility as much as there's a certain validity given and 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 uh, to the to the urban legend and why it, it why they are around uh, when they can source that far back in our our American history. In terms of the show's production, I'm really interested in your take as you've been both in front of and behind the camera for so many different types of things. On this one, not only are you the host, but the narrator. So what is that dance like for you to navigate when it comes to the choices you make in delivery in the theater of the performance, which is kind of the most integral and fun part of this, darkening your voice when you say things like, and the monster in a crisis is fear and all those fun things that you do. Well, that's the hard part. That's the challenge. Um, that's one of the things that attracted me. I've, I've hosted before and I've hosted uh, uh, awards shows and I've, host, I've hosted ones that are thematic uh, to the genre, obviously. Uh, but I've, I've hosted straight stuff, uh, you know, film editors, awards and things like that. And I've narrated. I've narrated uh, the great... Uh, John Milius surfing epic, Big Wednesday. And uh, I've done some narration. Uh, uh, even recently on, on the film Fear Clinic, I did a lot of narration. Um, but I've, I've narrated sequences in other films that I've been in or that I haven't been in. And I've done voiceover work. But the challenge with True Terror is to allow the baggage that I bring as Robert England, horror movie actor, uh, you know, to kind of imbue my on-screen personality and persona. And then when I, when it blends into the narration, it's more difficult because I haven't always seen everything that my crew has shot on location. So I don't know how dark or graphic or violent or, or moody a sequence might be. And I have to make those choices sometimes alone. Uh, in the sound recording studio. Uh, I know what the script says, but I don't necessarily know what locations they found. A covered bridge, an old barn, you know, a field with a split rail fence at dawn. And so sometimes I I have to take a shot in the dark and I'll, I'll do it poetic and elegiac. And then sometimes 
I know that I, I'm going to be sort of beating the drum for a scary sequence and uh, I can be a little more theatrical and I can kind of go dark. And then sometimes I have to be very matter of fact and conversational. I've borrowed a little bit from that, that wonderful guy that hosts uh, uh, Dateline. You know, he does such a great job yeah. with this <laughs> blending of on, you know. And, and and he has that great advantage where sometimes they actually take him to the police station or they take him to where they found the body or he gets to meet, the, you know, the victim's parents, things like that. And I'm hoping that next season, perhaps, like if they find a really terrific location, I don't know, a, a, a waterfall uh, or, or a, you know, a 300 year old barn somewhere with a hex sign on the side of it that maybe they'll, they'll fly me to Pennsylvania or somewhere and lean me up against the side of the peeling painted side of a barn and let me kind of wrap up that episode being part of the world. If you remember the old Twilight Zones, maybe second or third season, sometimes there'd be an old carousel horse or the crushed glasses of an avid reader, Burgess Meredith or someone, and the camera would be looking at that and then it would hinge off and you'd discover Rod Serling there uh, on the merry-go-round or or Rod Serling you know, in the library uh, of the man who stepped on his reading glasses, the man losing his eyesight. And so he would be going into his sort of blind purgatory. And 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 Rod would actually be connected to the story. He would sort of invade the space of the story you just heard and wrap it up for you with this sort of rhythmic Rod Serling written poetic wrap up. And I'm hoping that we can do a little bit of that or even bring back a telltale signature prop uh, an old sword, a Civil War saber or something from one of the episodes with a little bit of dried blood on it or something. And let me have it on the sound stage where I, I, I kind of end the show or blend into the next episode or segment. And maybe I could be fondling that prop or have it, which just links me a little more with the story. Uh, because, I mean, part of what I'm trying to convey is, you know, I am fascinated by this stuff. And and if I wasn't in true terror, it's one of those comfort food, I think you said earlier, it's one of those comfort food shows that we kind of rely on sometimes. Now, I've I'm, I'm sequestered at home here like we all are. And, uh, you know, I'm social distancing and and uh, sheltering in place. But I'm catching up on a lot of, of shows and I'm binging a lot. I just finished uh, uh, Narcos Mexico, which is brilliant. Some great acting. And I, I discovered some new character actors from south of the border on that show. They're wonderful. And and I'm just, just finished Ozark, which I love with, with Jason Bateman. But, you know, that's a, a degree of devotion and uh, uh, tension level when you're streaming and juggling all those plots and characters in your head, you know, and it's kind of like reading a novel all at once without putting the book down as, as, as the expression goes. And so you need a break sometimes. Sometimes I just need to watch, you know, the, an episode of Dateline or I want to just watch Deadliest Catch or, or, or Moonshiners or, 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 or something or, or, you know, Dateline. And, and just to kind of purge myself and have that kind of comfort food formula where I know I can run downstairs and pee and make a sandwich. You know? <laughs> back and, and, and then, and they, and then they do that great, you know, previously on, or they do that nice, they kind of reestablish you in the formula back. And I like that. And I, I think that 
formula television, where it's sitcom, whether it's Twilight Zone, whether it's a Dick Wolf show, you know, I think we kind of rely on that structure. I think it is comforting to us. I think we look forward to it and lean into it. And it, it, it kind of helps us. Too. I, I don't think we should think of, of, of formula in television or in, in cable as, as a dirty word. Now, much like Unsolved Mysteries and all these great shows that we've been talking about, True Terror is going to inevitably be the gateway to a new generation of tomorrow's fans of the macabre and horror. What is your personal earliest memory of being whisked away by dark or, or horror genre fandom pictures, TV, anything like that? Well, interesting things. There's a, a kind of a Hitchcockian sequence with giant Egyptian gods in, uh, I think it's the Stuart Granger, and maybe Grace Kelly's in it, a version of King Solomon's Mines. And, and, and as a child, that was mind-blowing to me, to see the, 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 the kind of chase across these massive faces like Hitchcock did in North by Northwest, you know, with the president's faces in North Dakota. And, and so that's a memory. Uh, I also saw, I think I saw, my mother was a big James Mason fan. And I think I saw the premiere of uh, Walt Disney's 20, uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. And I have very vivid memories of the giant squid and the giant squid's tentacle uh, coming, uh, uh, grabbing a sailor and then kind of coming into the Nautilus submarine and dropping the sailor. And he had these giant scars, blisters, sucker marks on him from the suction of the tentacles, the underside of the tentacles uh, of the giant squid. And, uh, and, and I love the production design of that movie. And my first time, and I was there opening week, uh, of Disneyland, I remember they had the uh, cutaway of the Nautilus. Oh, cool! And all the costumes of James Mason and Peter Lorre and Kirk Douglas, and they had Kirk Douglas's a recording of him singing "Got Away with a Tale to Tell Ya, Lads, Away with a Tale or Two. And uh, you know, and they had the set. You were on the Nautilus, and literally the window would kaleidoscope open, and you could look out, and there with the dappled lighting coming in on you was the giant squid and the seaweed blowing. And they had a fan on the seaweed. You couldn't see the fan and the lighting. And you felt like you were underwater and the squid and you could see his beaked mouth and the tentacles would combine. You couldn't see the wires because the lighting was so well done and they used monofilament. But as a child, you know, as a little boy seeing that and seeing the behind the scenes of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and kind of having a hint at how they did it. That was kind of miraculous and addictive to me. And then shortly after that, with lawn mowing money uh, from my chores and volunteering to cut lawns and mow lawns around the neighborhood, uh, my mates and I would go down for the double bill Saturday matinee with two cartoons. And uh, we saw forbidden planet and there's a special effect in forbidden planet that's really ahead of its time and it's animation on mat work we, we couldn't figure out what it was it was the monster of the id uh it was a manifestation of the evil of the walter pigeon character and he of course is the magician prospero in the uh, shakespearean tempest uh borrowing uh that forbidden planet is and of course Anne francis his daughter is miranda from from uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest, but we couldn't figure out what the uh, 
outline animated thing was. And I remember about three weeks later, you know, there's that kid in your class that always draws really well. He would draw the, the forks on an eyeball, you know, I mean, the eyeball, the eyeballs on a fork with flames, Von Dutch flames coming off them. And he, you, you, you would save your lunch money and give him some money and he would draw really cool monsters for you. Yeah. Uh, Cartoon Frankensteins and things on your blue three ring binder notebook. Anyway, I remember he was in the back of class when we were all sitting there in our modular seating, you know, with our little grooves for our, our, our perfect pencil with the eraser on it and paying attention or pretending to pay attention to the teacher. And I remember Ronnie Walker in the back of the class, the kid that could draw the coolest and he could cartoon. And I remember him working it out from his mind's eye imagination. And we'd already seen it three times now. And I remember from the back of the class, Ronnie Walker going, damn it, it's a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> and all jumped up and ran to the back of the class. And there on his lined, uh, you know, with the three holes in it, school paper, he had drawn the saber-toothed tiger from his imagination from Forbidden Planet. And that was like a real fanboy moment from me i mean that was really an escalation uh, uh because we, we lo i love that detail but this is before you know uh uh videos this is before dvds this is before the pause button uh this is before instant replay uh and you and, and you know it cost it cost me i must have mowed 10 lawns to see forbidden planet three or four times before we could figure out you know we love robbie the robot and uh, there were some great jokes in the movie and we loved the production design, but you know, to, that we couldn't figure out what that creature was. And it was just, just brilliant, you know, like that, that. And then the Morlocks, the Morlocks from, uh, from time machine too, were pretty great. Those are my, my childhood, you know, really the first things that got to me and, and frightened me and kind of arrested my imagination. Well, I can't help but uh, notice the Freddy Pinball Machine in the background. We actually have one of those just outside the studio here as well. Probably the coolest piece of Freddy merchandise ever created. Do you recall? What do you recall about being a part of that, making the making the machine? It's my voice on the machine, and they flew me to Chicago, and they put me up in the old Drake Hotel, the great old Drake Hotel, which is wonderful, you know. And uh, I would go hang out, you know, for lunch and have a couple of Irish whiskeys and watch the ladies who lunch. But they drove me out to suburban Chicago and I took an elevator and I went underground like three or four floors underground in this industrial neighborhood of Chicago in the suburbs. And uh, it was Gottlieb was the company. And they were down there doing the, the, all the new pinball machines and they were getting more and more advanced at that time. And I laid out, I did my voices and, and we kind of hid some Easter egg jokes deeper as you play in the higher your score. But I, what I remember was the pinball wizard boys, uh, the guys that were hustling pinball all over America, they would hire the winners and bring them in there uh, and have them kind of help with the design. I think they were doing an alien machine too for the, for the film alien. But what I remember was there was an abundance of industrial espionage. Really? That time. Yeah. But, and this is when, when, when Sega was coming out, remember? Yeah. And gaming was just really starting to take off again. Now we look back at, at pinball machines like model T's like space invaders and, and Pong, you know, and Pac-Man. Um, but then this stuff was all happening. And uh, uh, 
there was a lot of industrial espionage. And that's why they had all this security and why, why it was all underground. And they would go around and they were, they had, they would hire the different companies would hire the pinball wizards because these were the guys that they were using for industrial espionage for spying on the other team to see what games they were coming up with. So I, that was my introduction to that world. But I have I have a, a real pristine machine here. Uh, it's covered with um, fan art. Fans send me these sort of rag dolls of Freddy, and singularly they're not too. They're not too special, but when you put them all together, it looks like some strange witch's coven for Freddy <laughs> assembled, you know, all of these really strange voodoo dolls of Freddy. So you can see it clustered there I love on the it. top pinball machine speaking of the inventiveness of the elm street franchise and the pinball machine and all the supplemental things that became a part of the freddy world the 900 phone line when you call freddy would tell you stories was there anything you did outside the box promotionally that perhaps never saw the light of day as freddy well you know new line cinema had never had a hit before and they they were so grateful for being approached by people to merchandise nightmare on elm street they didn't really know know what they were doing uh i I think they even lost a lot of money uh through some of the merchandising overseas they couldn't really monitor uh that that money at that point but they they tended to do it the demographic too young originally and uh, so i'm sure there's some some weird in europe and and even in the states there's some some freddy toys for for very young kids that probably should not have been made (laughs) occasionally i'll be at a convention or something and someone will bring up something i've never seen before i've seen the board games and i've seen some of the silly stuff i i didn't see all of that at the time i was real busy doing those movies and other movies um uh you know at the time but subsequently i've seen them my fondness is in more of a different direction i really love the uh the foreign posters uh you know like the lurid thai posters and indonesian posters and there's some great italian and french posters uh japanese posters that sort of have greatest hits on them you know all the best bits in the movie on one poster i saw a a french poster opening day in paris for uh freddie's dead nightmare on elm street part six and they get the same proof sheets from the onset photographers that that the Americans get, but they can use any image they want. And I remember one day on the set, I was in makeup and uh, we were in between sequences and we were in a downtime and they brought on as a gift for the actors, uh, they brought on uh, uh, Lisa Zane and myself and some others, they brought on uh, the original 3D glasses uh, for the 3D sequence. Yeah. And Freddie's dead. And I put a pair on and I had my hat off. The fedora was was off and I was goofing around and dancing with the 3D glasses on. And they were people were taking pictures and the, the, the set still photographer, publicity photographer was shooting me, too. And I was just goofing around. Well, I hadn't seen any of those. And a couple of years ago, uh, I was over in Europe at a wonderful convention and then i went to a film festival uh down in uh, in in spain and a fan brought me a giant circus size poster of the opening day in paris le odeon champs elysees of freddy's dead and it's me 
goofing around as Robert no in the way. <laughs> with 3D glasses on, but I'm it's giant, it's circus size. And then on the side of it are the are four images from the movie in 3D. And then hanging on the poster are the original glasses mounted on it. And it was in pristine condition. And uh, I signed it for him. The kid had no idea of the value. Anything with 3D in it is valuable now anyway, because 3D is here to stay. But uh, so if you have an old Vincent Price poster, you know, that's it, worth more. Don't sell it. They're, they're going up in value every minute as we speak. But uh, I, I know that he got to New York. The kid got to New York with that poster and sold it. And he, I think he sold it at Forbidden Planet in New York. I'm not I, I think that's where he sold it, uh, the bookstore. But he got a lot of money for it. I mean, a lot of money. But I love seeing stuff like that. You know, there's a, a, a tie poster of the phallic Freddy Snake, Freddy Worm, swallowing Patricia Arquette, Oscar winning Patricia Arquette, <laughs> lovely Patricia, you know, in Nightmare on Elm Street, Three Dream Warriors. And, and, and it's kind of a reverse dare I say, cunnilingus, uh, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's, it's all these stra- a reverse fellatio. I don't know what you would call it. Um, because it's the snake, the phallic snake swallowing Patricia. And she's in her kind of Peter Pan, Wendy little flannel nightgown, you know, and she's all luscious and sexy and adolescent. And she looks like she kind of likes it. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, the, uh, it's, it's very lurid colors. And you are, my name is in that wonderful Thai calligraphy font. It's just, I love that stuff. That's the kind of stuff that really, uh, really, really rings my bell. What did you keep from the nightmare franchise? Like gloves, hats, sweaters, props? I have a makeup head, the actual mold from part two, but not from part one. Now, part one was David Miller. Part two is the Kevin Yeager came on, uh, on board. Uh, so I have that. And I have weird things, you know, like I, I love foreign posters of all my movies. I, I really think the foreign posters are cool. But I, I did pickup shots for Nightmare on Elm Street part two at a little tiny soundstage in Hollywood, uh, like where they shoot music videos. And it was just insert shots and a shot of my shadow with the claw. I think there was an insert shot of the claw opening a door, things like that. They just needed some shots. It was after we had finished part two. And Wes Craven loaned the claw, the glove, to Jack Shoulder for the shots, to, to do the pickup shots. And I had heard through Fangoria magazine contacts that... Uh, there were going to be, again, industrial espionage people on the set of Nightmare on Elm Street for this pickup shots. People were going to like try to steal stuff because the, 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 I knew that number one, part one, Nightmare on Elm Street was a hit. And I knew it was an international hit, but no one had any idea that we were going to become this amazing franchise of eight movies and a TV series. And now it's going to be rebooted and, and, and all the merchandising. No one had a clue to that. And, uh, I did Nightmare 2 because they, they paid me more money. And, uh, you know, it, it was a gig. But we at that point, we still didn't know. Nightmare 2 hadn't come out. Uh, we were still shooting it, in essence. And I remember being warned that someone was going to steal some stuff off the pickup day shoot. And I said, what the hell? I'll take the glove. You know, there's people here stealing stuff. I'm going to take the glove. Oh, you know. And I took it. And I, 
I was still preoccupied with being a big television star at that time. That's what I was famous for, a TV series called V. So I had the gloves stuffed and floated in plexiglass and then outlined in red and green neon. Oh, nice. I I gave it to my agent for his office and, uh, he ain't giving it back. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's Smithsonian quality, you know, I mean, it's really nice. So that's the best thing I ever had from the, from the shoot. And, and it's gone. All the sweaters that I wore and a lot of the claws from later films went to both planet Hollywood and, uh, uh, what was the other one? Uh, hard rock cafe. Yeah. And they went there for charity, you know, charity events and to be, you know, displayed and, de- and, and, and for decor. And now I think uh, Planet Hollywood is uh, practically gone. I know there's the Hard Rock still doing well, but I think Planet Hollywoods are gone. And so I don't know. I guess all that stuff's in a in an attic somewhere in Idaho with Bruce Will by Bruce Willis's house, <laughs> <laughs> or Arnold Schwarzenegger or or, or whoever were, were those investors. Because I don't know, but I know that they got a lot of my sweaters. I think they got the original boots, the original hat, some of the claws from parts two, three, four, five, six. And they would, you know, they would put them in the various uh, Planet Hollywoods uh, and Hard Rocks all over the world. Robert, the uh, the first Elm Street movie and part three, Dream Warriors, holds a special place in my heart. I, I was lucky enough to catch them in a small grindhouse theater uh, when they were released. Out of all the Elm Street movies, uh, do you have a personal favorite? Yeah, I like I like my performance in part four, which a lot of people call and they and, and not unkindly. They call it the MTV one because we used a lot of well, Ronnie Harlan used a lot of, of of the new kind of editing and jump cutting and stuff that uh, was popular then on MTV and cutting cutting to the beat a little bit and I, and he left me alone and I like my performance in that it, it's it's uh, very physical uh, I almost danced he trusted me a lot uh, but my favorite is part seven Wes Craven's new nightmare. That was Wes's Valentine to the fans. We all got to sort of send ourselves up, uh, sort of satirize ourselves, satirize ourselves, uh, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, we, you know, we made we made fun of ourselves in Hollywood and our success at that time, and we took uh, this great sort of meta concept of what if Freddie had been real. And he was angry with people exploiting his evil for their success, Hollywood in particular, and Wes Craven and Bob Shea and myself and others, Heather Langenkamp. And uh, he came back to haunt us, you know, as himself, as the true evil, uh, uh, the presence, uh, the specter that is Freddy Krueger. And I kind of love that. It's kind of meta. It was a little ahead of its time. There's a lot of Easter eggs in it and humor in it. Um, if you watch the beginning, and I love it because there's the earthquake, which is very, very real and very, very L.A. And uh, there's the witness, the child witness, which uh, Guillermo del Toro exploits so wonderfully in all of his films. You know, and there's more jeopardy, I think, in a horror movie when there's a child involved. Uh, you just worry more uh, for the kid's safety uh, as a viewer. And uh, so, so you have all of those elements in the opening, but Heather's husband in real life, David Anderson, is a famous, award-winning, cable ace, Emmy-winning uh, makeups effect expert. 
He does American Horror Story, among other things. And uh, uh, there's an actor playing him in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And Heather goes to visit uh, her husband on the set of a Wes Craven movie, Wes Craven playing himself. But it's the meta works. It goes even further. If you watch her wardrobe, watch what she's wearing in those sequences. Uh, It's real interesting when the dream, when the illusion begins, uh, when we break with a sort of fictionalized reality uh, and become just a Nightmare on Elm Street movie again. Uh, it, it's really a smart movie, and it was a success when it came out, but it wasn't, you know, Bafo Sacco hit, as Variety is wont to say. Uh, it, was ju- it was just simply a successful movie. But then West did the Scream franchise, which was even more meta and even more audience, horror audience-specific with characters that were much more like the real kids that like horror movies and with Jamie Kennedy's character and others. And, and, and then people returned to Wes Craven's new nightmare and the Blu-ray and the, and the DVD. And it, it finally became the hit it deserved to be because it's a real good, smart movie really holds up a lot like Freddy versus Jason. Um, it really holds up. You pop it on a, on a flat screen, you know, a, a nice Blu-ray, uh, on a big flat screen and, uh, you know, you put it in front of a 12 year old and they'll like it. <laughs> Something that was really fun canon for Freddy fans is the first episode of the Freddy's Nightmare series. And that was uh, the first time we see Freddy on trial. The first time we see his execution it was uh, called No More Mr. Nice Guy, directed by Toby Hooper. What was the genesis of that? Well, that's the prequel we should have made a, a, into a movie. And I know that I contributed a script uh, for part three, uh, elements of that showed up in other movies, but you know, I wasn't about to sue new line because, uh, they were, they were treating me great. Uh, but we've always been talking about a prequel and, and sometime shortly after Freddie versus Jason, I was at an Oscar party and there was one of the new lines executives was there and we'd been drinking and he told me, that there was a terrific script going around and that they were thinking of being of bringing the guy, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to forget his name now, uh, the director of uh, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, uh, John, I'm trying to think of his name, the great director of that movie that used, that movie used uh, uh, documentary style very well. Uh, uh, cinema verite is a way of telling a story about a, a serial killer, Michael Rooker, doing you know, a brilliant performance. And, uh, so there was some discussion about this script that was floating around. And I've heard various titles. One of them was called Kruger, the First Kills. And you followed Freddy, sans makeup, Fred Kruger, uh, on his sort of serial child killing spree. And then the two cops that would solve the crime and find him. And then, and this is where it gets really good, then Freddy goes to court just like the pilot of Freddy's Nightmares. And the great parts in this film are the roles of the attorney or attorneys that get Freddy off. Uh, They're like these ambulance chasing brilliant guys and they get Freddy off. And of course, Freddy gloats on the courtroom stairs after he gets away with it, you know, uh, and it's a, a hung jury and uh, uh, he gloats and, and then he's obviously 
the conclusion of the movie is Freddie being burned alive. You get to see it, you know, the transformation into Freddy Krueger and, and him burning like Joan of Arc in his boiler room with the vigilante parents. And, but I like that. I like that the chapters are so great. Freddie killing the, the kids, uh, the cops, the crime, you know, trying to find, you know, like, like a law and order episode, the cops that catch care the detectives that catch him and what they have to go through and how they find him. And then they're the lawyers that get Freddie off. And then you've got your perfect button, which is Freddie burning. And they never made that movie. And as close as we may ever come to that, unless somebody revives that or rewrites it, is that that episode, that pilot episode of Freddy's Nightmares directed by none other than Tobe Hooper. And moving forward, is there a particular director or team of creators that could either get you into the makeup one more time or perhaps that you think would make a welcome addition to the Elm Street legacy that would embody the spirit of what the franchise has done? Well, I really like the work of everybody surrounding uh, both Deadpool and uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So maybe there's an associate producer or an assistant director or uh, an assist, you know, someone or one of the writers, someone in that world. They got that so right that I think it's someone like that uh, needs to go back and kind of reevaluate the, the Freddy prequel or, or the franchise. I think it needs that kind of a goose. I, I think it needs to be darker. I think it needs the wink needs to be there when it when when it does need to be there. You know, you need to have humor in a horror movie, because if you don't let an audience, if you don't tell an audience where to laugh or give them a comedy relief character, sooner or later, the audience will laugh at you instead of with you because you just can't take 90 minutes of just being terrified. They need that emotional break so that you can set them up again for a scare again. But I would think someone from that world might have some good ideas. There's a lot of young writers out there uh, that I haven't met. I understand the rights have reverted to the Craven estate. Uh, and I know both I, I've met, I'm an acquaintance with both Wes's daughter and son, Jonathan, and they're both in the business and they're both really smart kids like their dad. And I would hope that they probably not only give time to n- new young people that have ideas, about where to take Freddy or or how to tr- retreat uh, some of the franchise, but also that they go back and, and look at some of the stuff that's, you know, getting dusty and cobwebby on, on some shelves at New Line Cinema or maybe some stuff that, you know, Michael Bay had over there at Platinum Dunes uh, when he was thinking about rebooting the franchise. And there may have been some scripts that uh, were considered second best or third best by the readers, but maybe they're better than we think. I, I've always wondered why when they rebooted Nightmare One that they didn't use those those kind of effects that they used in Inception and those kind of effects that they used in that film, uh, that Robin Williams film, where dreams, when dreams may come, where dreams may come, you know, the melting paintings melting into the dreamscape, into a surrealistic kind of landscape of the mind. Now, they can do that effect and the effects from Inception even better now uh, with more state of the art CGI and technology. So I would love to see that kind of stuff uh, in, in the Freddy nightmares, in the, in the Freddy dreamscape uh, when he's toying with his victims. I don't think you just need to replicate uh, the nightmares that have gone before. I think the reason for remaking the the various uh, episodes of the franchise would be to exploit 
the new technology, not to just uh, repeat what we've done before and, and for considerably less money, I might add. <laughs> Are there any plans to pursue Freddie as a voice only project, maybe in a purely animated form? Well, I would be up for that. I, you know, I would be up for that. Somebody else uh, got to beat me to the punch on one of the games out there, I think, and, and did a terrific job. But uh, yeah, I'd love to be asked to uh, do the voice. Uh, I, I think that, and I'm not sure the style, I, I'm not sure that what you call the style, you guys are probably better at this than I am, but occasionally I see at a, at a, at a Comic-Con and I, I saw one at a great bookstore in France, a, a phenomenal graphic novels. And there's a style I like that's like a kind of real sexy, nasty version of that style that was used on the animated Superman series from the 1950s. I think that was Max Fleischer Studios, but I've seen a kind of graphic novel equivalent of that uh, that I really like. And it's color, not black and white, uh, like the old Superman series. But it's really a lot of Dutch angles a lot of insert shots, and I would love to see that style brought to an animation style, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And, and you could even have sequences in black and white, I think. I, I would love to see black and white sequences in, you know, in animation, streaming, or, or, or something that I could buy or on a series. But I think it would lend itself to a series. There's so many victims over the course of the franchise and if every episode if you had half hour episodes of animation and you could just devote it to just each victim you know and maybe you just call it the freddy kills or something like that you know uh, but i i think that would be a real interesting uh animated show and i'd love to play the voice i'd love to do the voice work on that the voice work is fun because you don't you don't have to there's no vanity in voice work you're not worried about your bald spot showing you know, <laughs> and, and, and you're not worried about having a zit or, or shaving or any of that uh you know you just show up in your pajamas and uh you do it till you get it right and because uh, it's cost effective and it's just really fun and you never know who you're going to meet you know when you when you show up for a voice a voice job there's always great voice actors you've never met before that are way better than you. And then there's also stars you've never met. You know, uh, uh, you, you, it's, it's really fun to do those. I run into old friends and, and like, like Mark Hamill, you never know who you're going to run into at, 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 when you do voice work. It's, it's, it's lots of fun. I'm glad I've, I've found that as a niche to do now at this stage of my career. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show. I'm so afraid of your character and you've helped me. Like, I can't watch a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I'm so scared. <laughs> I watched it pieces too young. And then you came on Loveline and I was junior producer and you were there for Freddy versus Jason and Dr. Drew had to like calm me down and you... <laughs> You scared me, but this has been this has been pleasant. This has been nice. I remember meeting you. <laughs> oh my and god! Because there was no Adam Carolla then. Yeah, was Adam not there? I'm not sure. Oh, I don't know. The guy after Adam. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I was scared. I, I was very scared. But I I'm... remember that. I remember <laughs> that because back then my wife had a a a, a crush on Doctor Drew. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> 
That's so funny. Well, I'm so glad that we met again. <laughs> and Freddie has a crush on you. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time today. And once again, congrats on this new show, True Terror with Robert England, airing now on the Travel Channel, TravelChannel.com and the Travel Channel Go app, man. Stay safe, everybody. Wash your hands and I'll wash my claw. <laughs> That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 116. Special thanks to our guest, Robert England. Follow him on Twitter at Robert B. England and Robert underscore B underscore England on Instagram, also robertengland.com. Watch his new show, True Terror, with Robert England, airing Wednesdays at 10, 9 central on the Travel Channel. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, stay safe, stay healthy, watch tons of horror and sweet screens. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.